Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that there are mentions of sexual assault in today's episode. You must remember that when the Constitution was written, that women were regarded as property. The struggle for an Equal Rights Amendment traces back to 1923 when feminist Alice Paul wrote the words that became ERA. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So as we march today, remember, Forward together, backward never. If you could change one thing about the Constitution, what would it be? I would add an equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Yesterday, all these years later, Virginia's legislature voted to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, making it the 38th state to do so. That means three-quarters of all states have ratified, as the Constitution requires. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney, feminist, and advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is Ordinary Equality. Our story today hinges on a four-month period more than 200 years ago. From May 25th to September 17, 1787, 55 white men met at the Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia. Their goal? To create a constitution for the newly minted United States. There were significant challenges to building a governmental structure that appealed to states large and small with and without enslaved people. After much deliberation, the document was signed. However, the final outcome, the U.S. Constitution, was intentionally exclusionary. Participation was reserved for land-owning men. And that's what we're here to talk about. Why didn't women make the cut? Had things gone differently, maybe we wouldn't even need an Equal Rights Amendment. A favorite rationale for the Constitution's failings is that they're byproducts of an era in which the document was written. Even then, in that era, the writers of the Constitution had examples close at hand of governing structures that did include women. There wasn't precedent for full women's rights in Western society, but Native society was a different story. To learn more, I spoke with Jacqueline Keeler, a journalist and author. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation and born for the Yankton Sioux people, the Yankton Dakota people. It's one thing to challenge the social structure, but then to be told that all of history is against you, that never have women had rights. But here they had a living example that they could observe and realize that here in the land that they were on now in New York State, that that had not been the case for a thousand years. Women had been a vital part of the Iroquois Confederacy, choosing the leaders. Other facets of the Constitution were heavily influenced by the organizational systems of Native Americans. Benjamin Franklin was particularly well acquainted with those structures as his publishing house put out translated versions of their founding documents. 
He published the treaties and the discussion that happened before the treaties, and including some by leaders' um, statements about the Great Law of Peace. And uh, the Great Law of Peace was the um, Iroquois Confederacy's constitution. Um, they say it was developed in the 1100s at a time period when uh, there was a lot of brutality happening um, between the Iroquois people, people of the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse. And with the um, arrival of the, the peacemaker who brought the Great Law of Peace, they were able to rationally convince the leadership to enter into this new or way of organizing themselves through the clan mothers. This had been um, the law there in New York, what is now New York State, for for several hundred years. Benjamin Franklin was inspired by this, and uh, and actually the, the, the tr when he published these treaties, they were bestsellers uh, with the speeches from the Iroquois leaders. So they had a big influence on the entire generation of founding fathers. It was These are the books that they read in their communities. Benjamin Franklin invited leaders of the Iroquois Confederacy to join him at the Constitutional Convention. There, the story goes, his guests were flummoxed at the lack of women involved in the proceedings. In fact, the people there were all of one demographic and one socioeconomic class. You know, the Constitution and the Revolution was really led by some of the wealthiest white men in the world. That's something I came up against when I was doing my, my research for the book. Constantly, every founding father was pointed out as being really one of the wealthiest people in the world at that time. Jacqueline's upcoming book is called Standing Rock, The Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Occupation, Sovereignty, and the Fight for Sacred Land. The wealth that was garnered through the taking of land and also slavery was immense. And, and I, I think that's something we don't really think about, that the Founding Fathers, this is like a revolution led by Bezos and Gates. The mix of people involved in creating the U.S. Constitution looked entirely different from the organizational structures Benjamin Franklin had looked at for inspiration. Each indigenous nation has a different way of organizing power. And with the Iroquois Confederacy, I can say definitively that the clan mothers um, were the ones who chose the leadership and that they had the ability to dehorn a chief. So if that chief were to go to, like, to Congress or to another Native nation and, and say or do things that the clan mothers did not approve of, then they would be dehorned. They would, they would have their chieftainship taken away. The women had that power to remove men from leadership at any time. Even my father's people, you know, the Dakota, Lakota people are often portrayed as being, you know, very male-oriented. But the tipi, the lodge, always belonged to the woman. It was her personal property. And whenever her male relatives would kill a buffalo, by the time she got there, anything she touched belonged to her. It became her property. So in this sense, when you, you see this play out in American, the legal status of American white women in the 19th century, or even 18th century, uh, they had very few rights. They didn't have a right to property. Everything they owned became the, the property of their husband. And they had no, they were legally dead. They had no legal standing. They had no right to their children even. You know, they could, their husband could will the baby in their womb to someone else. They really had very little rights and little power. I think that American women today just don't understand the depth to which their ancestors were um, so dispossessed, lacked legal rights. The example, the living daily example, um, which did not exist in Greece, ancient Greece or ancient Rome, which are often sort of traced as the um, origins to American 
um, ideas of democracy and, and civil rights, the living example they had before their eyes uh, in many Native nations, uh, it would basically upend the idea that this was not possible. And so I think seeing it every day, see, and, and these communities lived in much closer proximity than people really realize, uh, you know, the level of um, interaction, the level of trade going on uh, is, is something that we um, sort of excise from our memory today. We, we whitewash the history, right? So the cultural exchange that happened was profound and, and, and is really the origin of, the, of what we call modernity. The men at the Constitutional Convention had clear examples of a more inclusive governing style, but they didn't care to replicate that particular aspect of the Iroquois Confederacy. Their own wives disagreed. On March 31st, 1776, future First Lady Abigail Adams wrote a letter to her husband, John Adams, who was participating in the convention. Abigail wrote, I long to hear that you have declared an independency. And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power in the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. That your sex are naturally tyrannical is a truth so thoroughly established as to admit of no dispute. Her husband, John Adams, replied, As to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We have been told that our struggle has loosened the bands of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges were grown turbulent, that Indians slighted their guardians, and Negroes grew insolent to their masters. But your letter was the first intimation that another tribe, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, were grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy I won't blot it out. We know better than to repeal our masculine systems. Although they are in full force, you know they are little more than theory. We dare not exert our power in its full latitude. We are obliged to go fair and softly, and in practice you know we are the subjects. We have only the name of masters, and rather than give this up, which would completely subject us to the despotism of the petticoat, I hope George Washington and all our brave heroes would fight. Well, they asked to be and were told that men knew better than to include their rights because it would undermine their masculine systems. And this is in writing in the Adams Papers. So that's one answer. That's Catherine McKinnon, professor of law at University of Michigan Law School and Harvard Law School. She's a legal feminist icon. They intentionally were excluded, as of course were enslaved peoples, all enslaved peoples, men as well as women. No, it was an active choice, as made clear in the exchange by Abigail and John Adams, at least on his part. The times, as one calls them, uh, were still living in the times, you know. And there are people who are intentional about excluding women from any form of voice or power. And then there are people who are able to not be intentional about it because it has been and is the way things are. I mean, it has been the way things are for so long and is the way things are in many respects. 
The only time women were mentioned in the Constitutional Convention deliberations was in a heated debate about the Fugitive Slave Clause. The pronoun he was used in the Constitution in the generic form throughout to refer to all genders. There is only one use of the word she in the evolving drafts of the Constitution, and that pronoun refers to one and only one thing, a fugitive enslaved person. And as to enslaved women, there was a very elaborate series of exclusions from full personhood together with waiting of enslaved people within the Constitution in order to give Southern slave owners more power so that they would agree to it. Uh, that whole set of arrangements is is been exhaustively documented. And, you know, that obviously also affected a vast number of women as well as men. To learn more about the ways that slavery and slave breeding in particular were in the minds of the Founding Fathers and how that shaped the Constitution, I spoke with Dr. Rebecca Hall. Rebecca is a historian, author, activist, and attorney. She's currently turning her PhD dissertation into a graphic novel called Wake, The Hidden History of Women-Led Slave Revolts. It tells the story of two slave revolts in early 18th century New York and also revolts on slave ships during the Middle Passage. And it focuses on women who led those revolts. One in 10 voyages had a documented slave ship revolt. And that's surprising because it was considered to be, it had been understood to be a very rare event. The more women there were on a ship, the more likely there would be a revolt. And when this finding came back, the historians who compiled this database, their response was, this is a fluke. So they questioned their own findings. They're like, we know this, this is a fluke because we know that, that enslaved women didn't participate in organized acts of violent resistance like revolt. So this, this answer doesn't make any sense to us. Well, I'm, I took this information and looked at the actual practices on slave ships. And, and it, makes, it made perfect sense to me because when a ship left the coast of Africa, men were kept below deck in, in chains, but women were brought up to the quarter deck and brought on deck and, and unchained. But that's also where the weapons were. And so looking through hundreds and hundreds of slave ship captains' logs, you know, I would see again and again stories of women getting access to these weapons or using their relative mobility to create revolt. I think the fact that enslaved African-Americans and enslaved African-American women in particular resisted slavery every way possible at all times are crucial for understanding in terms of having a sense of pride in who we are and where we came from. Many of the founding fathers had deep ties to slavery, and more specifically, the slave breeding industry that heinously treated human beings as crops. Slavers in the Upper South did not cultivate or trade goods. Their wealth was tied up in the enslaved people they owned. This created a perverse incentive for them to expand the population of people they held as property and consolidate political power. When the Constitution was framed, there were several provisions put in place that really reified the power of what would become slaveholding states. Those provisions included the creation of the Electoral College and the Three-Fifths Compromise. Both gave states with enslaved people greater representation. 
The Constitutional Convention created for the first time a national union in which free states were under a constitutional mandate to return fugitive slaves back into slavery and paved a more profitable path for slave breeding states. The slaveholding states said, well, it's either this or we're not going to form a country. And so they made a compromise, which is that every enslaved person would count as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of determining how many people were in the House of Representatives representing a state, and created what historians call the slave power, which is a situation where slaveholding states basically controlled all three branches of government up until probably the election of Lincoln. And finally, and very important, is the slave trade clause. And I think it's important for people to understand that at the time that there was there's an international slave trade or trade from Africa. And then there was a domestic trade where people were breeding enslaved people and selling them to other states. And here you had a conflict among slaveholding states because you had states like, most importantly, Virginia. Their main economic system was based on slave breeding. You know, its soil had been exhausted a long time previously, and they made their money by breeding enslaved people and selling them further south, selling them down the river, which is where that expression being sold down the river comes from. The deeper south states wanted the international trade to continue because they wanted the competition. And Virginia wanted the international slave trade to end so that there wouldn't be competition. At the center of this was and is the state of Virginia. In 1619, the first Black Africans were brought to Virginia almost exactly 400 years ago. Here's Jennifer Carol Foy, a representative in the Virginia House of Delegates, VMI graduate, and chief co-patron of the ERA ratification bill in the Virginia House. You remind people this is where American democracy was founded, but this is also where slavery was founded. To remind people that Virginia did not even want to acknowledge women's right to vote even after it was ratified. Reminding people that Virginia led the charge on uh, not desegregating our schools and actually closed down schools um, to make sure that black and white children were not educated together. That Virginia led the charge on interracial marriage and making sure that that could not happen. Um, and it was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. So Virginia does not have a good history of being on the right side of history and standing up for people's constitutional rights and civil liberties. I also spoke with Jennifer McClellan, a state senator representing Virginia's 9th District and the chief co-patron of the ERA ratification resolution in the Virginia Senate. You either believe in equality for all or you don't. And while the Declaration of Independence the words at the time didn't mean everybody. I think the 400-year struggle of our country has been, how do we make it true for everybody? When you compromise on that, then we'll never be the more perfect union that we're striving to be. My first session in the House was when the constitutional amendment to the Virginia Constitution that, uh, that said marriage was between a man and a woman passed. And I remember... It was like one of the votes, and I voted no. But I remember the arguments, and I'm like, these are the same arguments that were used against interracial marriage. And I thought, you know what? My great-great-great-grandparents 
couldn't be married because they were viewed as property. And it's the same. Delegate Carol Foy was in office last legislative session. At that point, ratifying the ERA in Virginia felt so close, but it was also so far. So last session, we came within one vote of actually being able to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. The Republicans attempted to keep it in the committee. And if it's not voted out of committee and sent to the floor, then it dies. Delegate Hala Ayala uh, put forth a rule change that would force the Equal Rights Amendment to the floor for a full vote. We lost that rule change 50 to 50 because we needed a majority. One vote kept the Equal Rights Amendment from coming to the full floor where we knew that we had the votes to get it passed. So with that said, you had a handful of legislators holding back the constitutional equality for 160 million women and girls. You also had a handful of legislators determining what several other legislators get to vote on when we represent almost 8 million people. That was very unfortunate. And I remember having conversations with Republicans at that time and saying, we can disagree on a lot of issues, but my equality isn't one of them. And there are a lot of questions that they had and they were all answered. And we can talk and have discussions, but I told them, let me be clear that if I can't change your mind on the Equal Rights Amendment, then I promise you, I will change your seat. The people of Virginia proved that they agreed with Delegate Carol Foy. In November, they voted to flip the House of Delegates and the Democratic Party now holds the majority. Virginia gained enough votes to make history. Here's a quick refresher on how constitutional amendments work in case it's been a while. Any amendment must pass in Congress with at least two-thirds of the House of Representatives and the Senate. Once it gets out of Congress, three-quarters of the state legislatures have to vote to ratify said amendment. In the case of the Equal Rights Amendment, the holdup was in state ratifications. We'll get to this more in future episodes, but the bottom line right now is we were just missing one state. It looks like Virginia just changed that. It has been a journey. For the women of Virginia and the women of America, the resolution has finally passed. These votes Wednesday in the Virginia House. Senate Joint Resolution 1 is agreed to. And Senate were celebrated as a possible turning point. That means three quarters of all states have ratified as the Constitution requires. This time, Virginia's on the right side of history. As of last week, Virginia State House and Senate both ratified the Equal Rights Amendment, making it the final of 38 states necessary. Here's Representative Carol Foy again. I think it's just a poetic and appropriate for us to finally, in 2020, to lead the charge and change the narrative of Virginia so people can feel inclusive and that their commonwealth represents them and they are here and they are safe and they are welcome and they are loved. And that's something we can do when we actually pass the Equal Rights Amendment. As we celebrate what happens in Virginia, 
But it's important to understand that women were not absent at the time our Constitution was created. Native women across the country, and specifically the Iroquois Confederacy, that our constitutional system is modeled after, participated as equals in their governance. Women who were contemporaries of the Founding Fathers, including their wives like Abigail Adams, vehemently protested their inferior status and their inability to participate as equals in American democracy. And like Rebecca said, enslaved women were actively fighting the system of chattel slavery that our Constitution helped create and facilitate. Our exclusion was no accident. It was not simply a byproduct of the times. These men intentionally created a system that benefited only them and continues to do so to this day. We're not quite done looking back in time. How did this amendment come into being? And why has it taken so long to get this thing ratified? Next time on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about Alice Paul and the trials and tribulations of complicated and problematic foremothers. Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production, edited and produced by Liz Smith, executive produced by Jenny Kaplan, and with support from Edie Allard. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to my employer, Equality Now, an international human rights organization that works to protect and promote the rights of women and girls all around the world. To learn more about what you can do to support the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, check out equalitynow.org backslash ERA. To follow along our journey, find us on Twitter at ordequality, O-R-D-E-Q-U-A-L-I-T-Y. If you like our show, please subscribe and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Wonder Media Network is a women-led podcasting company dedicated to lifting up underrepresented voices based in New York City. Before we go, if you like this podcast, check out Unladylike. Host Kristen and Caroline investigate how sisters are doing it for themselves in spite of all those unwritten but all too real bullshit expectations of how we should live our lives. Each episode starts with a question that CNC tackle through their trademark obsessive research, stories from rule-breaking ladies, and a solid dose of delightful feminist rage. Early on in Unladylike, they did an episode about my story. And in season seven, which launches on January 21st, they're covering topics from scams to sobriety to egg freezing. One cool episode to check out is episode 73. Caroline and Kristen talk to disability activist and rabble rouser Sinead Burke about navigating the world as a little person and accessibility. Check it out.